Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 10 of our discussion of Till We Have Faces. Um, and tonight, I am uh, hoping to get through one of the really painful chapters, the chapter of Apocalypse and Psyche's Doom. Um, apocalypse, I think, is a really uh, apt word for this book. Um, the word apocalypse, of course, um, means, well, it means revelation. That's why the last book of the Bible, the last book of the New Testament, um, is called Revelation in English because apocalypse is the Greek name. Um, that's what they called it in Greek, the apocalypse. Um, and, of course, through that association, that is because the apocalypse of St. John in the New Testament... Um, describes disastrous occurrences uh, and like, you know, plagues and horrible things happening. Um, that is, that's become associated with the idea of apocalypse so that now in modern usage, the word apocalypse just means disastrous occurrence. Um, uh, often world-ending disastrous occurrence. However, um, uh, the word apocalypse just means revelation and more specifically uncovering. Um, like you, you cover something up and you, you uncover it. Uh, that is, that is what apocalypse means. And of course, so in this book, as I say, it is particularly apt and relevant, the concept of apocalypse and the cons, the, uh, the, to, to calypso something, to cover something up, um, like, I don't know, with a veil or something, and then to uncover, um, and to let your face be seen. Um, this chapter, chapter 15, unless I'm getting my numbers wrong, but it's been, uh, in real time for those of you who are watching the recording, it's been several weeks since our last class, so I'm going to be a little bit disoriented, <laughs> but anyway, um, uh, we, um, uh, the, in this chapter, in chapter 15, um, we, um, are, um, going to be uh, seeing a lot of apocalypse, right? And some which is going to look uh, like the modern concept of apocalypse as well. Um, so yeah, exactly. As uh, Eric was just saying, apo means off and calypsis is a veil. Um, so to unveil uh, is the most like literal translation of the word apocalypse. So as I say, very relevant. Um, and this, what happens in chapter 15 uh, is what I call the first apocalypse of this book. Um, there's a second apocalypse later on. Um, but this is the first apocalypse, the first unveiling, in which um, in which Orwell tries to convince Psyche to unveil her husband, right? Um, and that revelation is, in fact, made. Um there is an unveiling about Psyche herself. There's an unveiling about her husband. And, of course, there's an unveiling of Orwell, uh as well. But um, anyway, so um, uh, yes, JJ, that is exactly true. Um, uh, there is an apocalypse at the end of the wedding. That's actually part of the symbolism, right, um, of the wedding veil. Right, and then the lifting of the veil at the end. Um, yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's totally an apocalypse. Um, but um, okay, 
Anyway, so that's where we're going tonight. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm as, uh, I'm as inappropriately confident as ever. But first, um, first I wanted to do our drawing. I, we've missed several weeks, and I said we're going to do a drawing a week. So we're going to do a bunch of drawings to make up for it. So remember, the drawings that we're doing are part of our uh, fall fundraising campaign. When we celebrate um, all the people who support and watch our shows and uh, so generously support uh, Signum uh, with their donations. So I'm going to be uh, doing three drawings tonight. The prizes, as you may recall, is your choice of an anytime audit uh, of one of our grad classes, a month space class, or a ticket to the regional moot of your choice. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna, so I'm gonna do three drawings tonight because I'm making up for. We missed two weeks. We missed Thanksgiving week and the week after that. All right. So first winner is. Emily, Emily Lauren Manrique, congratulations. Ah, I think uh, one of our YouTube listeners, I think. Congratulations, Emily. All right, let's, um, let's do another drawing. Drawing number two. Drawing number two is, mm, who is it? It is. John Hansen. Excellent. John Hansen is their second winner. And our third winner, our third winner is Fanaro's Pizza. You win. Fanaro's Pizza is our third winner. Excellent. Congratulations. Congratulations. Okay. So, uh, so, uh, that congratulations to all of you. And this, uh, reminds me to let you know, or to remind you that there's going to be a grand prize drawing. Um, so this is our last weekly drawing, but we're going to do a grand prize drawing, as I mentioned at the beginning, during our webathon uh, this coming Saturday, which is the end of the fundraising campaign. Um, so this Saturday, um, we're going to have our, 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 our webathon. Um, it's going to start at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. We're going to look at, um, we're going to do a little feature on all the different programs at Signum University, see what's going on and what's coming up and all of the different aspects of what Signum is doing. And then I'm going to do my State of the University address, talk sort of some of the, the big picture stuff, some updates on, you know, our finances and things that have been happening at Signum. And then I'm going to be doing an introduction to our new thing. We're going to be launching our new program. Um, this is uh, something I, I've mentioned before. Um, it's going to be our new publication system, which is going to be so much fun. I'm really, really excited uh, to show people what it is that we're going to be doing. Um, the stuff you're going to be able to get access to, the um, the ways in which you're going to be able to be involved. Uh, it's going to be really, really fun. So the introduction to the new thing is happening. So the um, uh, this sort of uh, update on Signum and what's been happening at Signum is going to start at 1pm. The, uh, um, the announcement 
the launching of the new thing is going to be happening at 4 p.m. This is all Eastern time, 1 p.m. Eastern time uh, for the very beginning, 4 p.m. Eastern time for the launch. After the launch, uh, I'm going to do a segment where we go through, uh, I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about all the different broadcasts that I do weekly, kind of looking back on what we've done uh, over the course of this year, uh, thinking about what is coming up there. And during those segments, we are going to, um, we're going to be doing our grand prize drawings. And the grand prize for the Mythgard Academy drawing uh, is going to be uh, as you may remember, your own choice of a one-shot session. So you'll get to choose a short work, a poem, maybe a short story, something like that, um, and we'll do a one-shot, uh, a bonus one-shot Mythgard Academy session on that short thing. It could be also like a TV episode or a film uh, as well. Uh, so that would be um, uh, so that would be fine. Um, and anyway. So that's what the grand prize is. Uh, so for whoever wins that drawing and to be eligible for that drawing, um, you just have to have entered uh, on our drawing form. And now you are eligible to uh, sign up again because we've just had our drawing. So you can sign up one more time this week. Uh, and it's okay if you've signed up before in previous weeks. You can sign up again now. If you've been faithfully signing up in different weeks, then uh, you'll have more chances to win the grand prize. So that'll be fun. So um, you can go ahead and again, even if you filled it out before, you can fill it out again. And that's totally fine. So um, I encourage you to fill that out again and we will do a grand prize drawing. Um, no, winners needn't refrain. It's totally fine. It's totally fine. Um, uh, the, uh, we could have a multiple winner. Exactly. Stack the W's, Jackie. That's exactly it. Um, uh, all right. So, um, so that's what's happening. So I, uh, it'll be the session on the broadcast when we're going to do the grand prize drawings, um, will be, um, about precise times, not really my specialty, but it'll be about, it'll be about, uh, 6 PM Eastern time. Um, all right. <laughs> so that's what's going to be happening. Hope you guys will be able to join me. We'll be broadcasting that on uh, Twitch and uh, YouTube and the usual places, which means you also will be able to see a recording of um, of those segments and everything uh, uh, if you're not able to attend live this coming Saturday. All right. Um, let's get back into the text. So I want to as I often do, especially when in real time, it's been a while. Um, I want to reread the last passage to, so that we can kind of remember what we, you know, built up to last time and then continue from there. We were right in the middle, um, of the, uh, well, I don't know if debate is the right word, the interchange, right? The, um, um, passionate discussion, uh, between Orwell and, um, psyche, increasingly passionate, which is an important thing, uh, a conspicuous thing, given for a, you know, for a student of the fox, a conspicuous thing. Um, remember, she has just been saying, um, we've noticed a couple things with Orwell prior to this point. We were focusing last time on how she is, um, we see the 
more profound struggle on her part, more profound grief and even embitterment at the recognition that Psyche has grown up, right? And her continually, she begins this conversation with trying to put Psyche into the child's place again and to assert a parental authority over her. And Psyche has been quietly and patiently um, asserting her, you know, that that is, that that does not work, right? That she is not a child anymore. Um, So that's one of the struggles that we've seen. One of the other things that came up is this issue with Orwell's virginity. Um, Things that... um, things that Psyche understands that Orwell doesn't understand. And it's not just, like, about sex, right? It's, um, she has, she's just going to be saying here in this slide that we're about to reread about how little Orwell knows of love. Um, but again, remember, this was one of the those other issues that we saw that Orwell was having, right? That Psyche has... Psyche has left her. And remember that conversation back in the room with three, with five sides the night after Psyche was like quasi-arrested when, before she was going to be sacrificed. When she, Psyche, was talking about how she was going to have to leave Orwell anyway, right? She was going to get married off. Um, and to, to do that, right? To be taken away from your home, uh, to lose your maidenhead, to become a mother, all of these things are a kind of death. She says, it's, you know, I, I would have, I would have, you would have lost me anyway. Um, and so I think that's a thing we should be remembering when we're thinking of, not of Psyche's perspective. She's not, you know, regretting losing her virginity or regretting becoming a wife, right? Um, it isn't that. It's that, but there has been a death. There's been a death of her, like the, the child psyche, right? The child, virgin, unmarried, sort of quasi-daughter of Orowal psyche doesn't exist anymore, right? That psyche is gone now. Um, and a new psyche is here who is prepared to reestablish a relationship with Orowal on new grounds, right? Um, not having lost the love and affection that she had for them before. Um, but, um, but, um, Orwell not dealing with that prospect particularly well. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. Um, Let's see. So, sorry, Jackie, you said, did the fox echo that idea when he and Orwell discussed her visit to Psyche also? I missed it. Which which idea exactly? Um, the idea of it being a kind of death? Oh, Orwell being likely to lose her to marriage. Sort of less directly. Like, uh, Psyche addressed it like, like, you were gonna lose me anyway. Like, yeah, on the one hand, it's sad that I'm, like, being a victim of human sacrifice, like, while I'm still a teenager. Like, that's kind of a bummer. But on the other hand, you know, you were gonna lose me anyway, right? I was gonna experience one kind of death or other soon enough, anyhow, right? So she, she was much more direct about it, whereas, um, what the fox, when the fox was talking about that, he wasn't talking about losing her so much as, but he was definitely sort of 
opening up to this idea of like a change, right? That even if she has become a poor man's wife, right? You know, like that's um, like we can work with this, right? There's um, what he was not at all sympathetic to, it seemed to me, was Orwell's complete rejection. Remember how she was like, that is unacceptable. Like I'd rather kill her than see that happen to her, right? Than like suffer that to be. Um, and the fox was like, bye bye, right? No way, holy cow. So, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Mary, that is a fascinating observation. The more we discuss this part in the book, the more I think Psyche dying at the sacrifice was the best case scenario in Orwell's mind. Um, Mary, I think that Orwell would be shocked and furious if you said that to her. Um, but I, I don't think you're wrong, actually. I mean, in, you know, what she, would, what she wants, of course, is to, to keep Psyche. But it wasn't going to happen, no matter what. Even if her dad didn't marry her off, right? Um, Orwell would still have had to confront this loss, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, anyway, let's go back. Let's uh, reread. I'm not going to spend too much time on this passage because we already talked about it, but then we'll um, we'll move on. Oh, Orwell, what evil you think. The reason I cannot look at him, least of all by such trickery as you'd have me do, is that he has forbidden me. I can think. Bardia and the fox can think of one reason only for such a forbidding, and of one only for your obeying it. Then you know little of love. You fling my virginity in my face again, do you? Better it than the sty you're in. So be it. Of what you now call love, I do know nothing. You can whisper about it to Redival better than to me, or to Ungit's girls, maybe, or the king's doxies. I know another sort of love. You shall find what it's like. You shall not... Orowal, Orowal, you are raving, said Psyche, herself unangered, gazing at me, large-eyed, sorrowful, but nothing humble about her sorrow. You would have thought she was my mother, and not I, almost, hers. I had known this long time that the old, meek, biddable Psyche was gone forever, yet it shocked me afresh. Um... What... So, on the one hand, Psyche's words, then you know little of love. Um, it's hard for me to completely blame Orowal for feeling hurt. Like, that's a, um, that's a little harsh. You know, not inappropriate. And I'm not saying Orowal doesn't deserve it, but it's a little harsh, right? Um, especially given that Psyche knows Orowal has never certainly been <laughs> sorry I'm doing it again I, I almost said in an in an Eros based relationship which is funny because Eros is the actual name of Psyche's husband um, so uh, uh, yeah uh, Psyche is of course in the theoretically speaking most erotic relationship anyone ever has been, right? When it's a relationship with Eros himself, like it's, uh, that pretty much defines the category, doesn't it? Um, uh, but she is certainly unfamiliar with Eros. 
Um, and, and again, Psyche knows it, right? So of course she knows a little of that kind of love. But the thing that really stings is that it's not just Eros. It's not just sexual love that Orowal is, because it's not only sexual love that's relevant here. The kind of relationship that she, Psyche, has with her husband is a relationship of love which is founded on more than just sexual desire, right? Um, and if, if um, Orowal can think of only one reason for Psyche to obey the forbidding, and the reason she's implying, based on what she said before, is because Psyche is afraid to find out the truth, right? Um, it's, a, it's a sign of her own doubts that she doesn't dare to, um, uh, to, 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 to see his face. And, she, and so she takes, like, the excuse of his forbidding uh, to um, sort of spare herself the breaking of her own um, illusions, right, is the implication, I think, from Orwell here. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, so when Orwell turns that and... Spe is, speaks sort of in, in, in increasingly um, shallow terms of sexual love, right? Uh, comparing Psyche's relationship with her husband first to Redival's flirtations and then to the temple prostitutes, ungood un girls, right? And their relationship with sex, um, which has little of affection about it at all. In fact, remember, they're completely dehumanized with their wooden masks and um, their makeup and the drugs. Um, but it is at least like holy. Like there's something um, uh, there, there's some element of sacrament there, it seems, in the temple worship, in the sort of within the frame of the temple worship um, of Ungit. Um, and then the king's doxies, right? The 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 mistresses, um, really just like the sexual objects of the king. Um, mistress, I think, is a little too grandiose. I think that's why she uses the more insulting term, um, doxy. There, um, yeah. So anyway, um, yes, I agree with you, Liz. I do think that Orwell is in some sense, deliberately misconstruing um, the statement that way um, so she doesn't need to deal with the fact that Psyche's love is real. And I would also add, Liz, that I think she's doing that so she doesn't have to deal with the other truth, right, of, of Psyche's statement, because it's true in two senses, right? It's true that she is ignorant of erotic love. It is also true that... Um, Orowal, her actions towards Psyche are betraying the fact that in some way she knows little of any kind of love, right? She believes that she has the profoundest love for Psyche, but we're seeing reasons to doubt that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, let's keep going. I looked about me. The sun was almost setting behind the saddle. In a little while, she would send me away. 
I rose up. An end of this must be made, I said. You shall do it. Psyche, I command you. Dear Maya, my duty is no longer to you. Then my life shall end with it, said I. I flung back my cloak further, thrust out my bare left arm, and struck the dagger into, in, into it till the point pricked out the other side. Pulling the iron back through the wound was the worst pain, but I can hardly believe now how little I felt it. Orwa, are you mad? cried Psyche, leaping up. You'll find linen in that urn. Tie up my wound, said I, sitting down and holding my arm out to let the blood fall on the heather. Um, so here is where the um, uh, here is where the real <laughs> emotional abuse begins. You could argue it's already begun, um, but um, this is when it really goes off goes off the tracks, right? Um, notice how. Immediately, how Orwal is using this. Um, Yarrow, I agree, this is definitely manipulation on her part. How is she manipulating her, right? Um, do you see how this is framed from Orwal? You shall do it, I command you. And then Psyche gives the answer that Orwell has to know she's going to give, because she's already given it a bunch of times. Dear Maya, my duty is no longer to you. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm grown. I'm married now. Um, if I have a duty, it is to my husband, not to you. She's already been saying that, and it's been bothering Orwell. So, but you shall do it. I command you. Then she stabs herself. And then what does she say? You'll find linen in that urn. Tie up my wound. She gives her another command. Right? And then stands there with the blood dripping, you know, running out of her wound onto the ground. Right? Until Psyche ties up her wound. Um, that's... She, so, so we see how the very first effect that she is going for here is to compel Psyche to obey her command. But notice how that compulsion happens. What is the, what force is she using? What power does she have over Psyche in order to change a refusal to obey her into an agreement, like a willingness to obey her. It's not physical force that she uses, right? What she uses is exactly um, our Argent Paintbrush and JJ. Um, it's it's the Psyche's love for her. Um, she is forcing... Remember that she felt, Orowal felt, this competition, Right? She couldn't accept. One of the things that she could not, would not accept, was that Psyche now has a husband that she loves, but she still loves Orwell too. And they can all live that way, right? And that Psyche has enough love for the both of them. But remember that Orwell grudged, like gently grudged, even 
Psyche's love for the fox. At times, at least. Right? She grudged even the fox coming in to the conversation. That started back in the room with five sides. Um, but, um, anyway, so, Orwell felt that those two loves were in conflict. The love of her husband, Psyche's love for her husband, and Psyche's love for Orwell. So what has she done? She has forced Psyche to choose. Being convinced that a choice must be made. Um, she was commanding her, and Psyche was refusing to obey her commands because she was choosing her husband over her, right? So she's now going to say, okay, let's up the stakes there, right? Um, you can choose whether you're going to obey your husband or let me bleed to death. Do you actually love me? Are you willing to, are you going to let me die? And there's a way, of course, right, in which this is a, a sort of a d dramatic enactment of how Orwell is feeling as well, right? Um, that she feels stricken, that she feels like she might as well be dead because Psyche doesn't care about her anymore, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes. Um, yeah, Leaf of Starlight, you are absolutely right. It is a very shocking moment. Um, and she's not just the force and violence of it, but it's a very sad and low thing to do, uh, to use love this way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, um, yes, I do think, Jackrabbit, that, that's, that it, is an, it is an important thing to remember. This is not merely, again, I don't say it is not at all, but it is not merely a narcissistic manipulation on Orwell's part. Again, is there an element of that here? Yes. But it's not merely that. It is also, as Jackrabbit um, said very well, she's externalizing and somaticizing her emotional pain. She's acting out her own emotional pain as well. Um, yes, the wounding of herself is tra transparently, almost explicitly, uh, an act of manipulation. Um, but it is also, on a different level, an expression of her own feelings here. Um, this is what I feel like because of how, of what you're saying and what is happening right now, Psyche. Right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, good. Yes. Uh, uh, Corey is recalling that uh, back in the room with five sides, Psyche pressed her Orwell to promise not to kill herself. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I agree. I think you're suggesting, and if you are, I agree with you, that Psyche knew before this moment that that kind of acting out of her emotions is a is on the table, right, uh, for Orwell. Um, yes. Um, well, Maureen, here's the other thing I would point to. Um, uh, uh, about the, the symbolism of the act. Is it symbolic that she's piercing her own skin? Yes, I think it's the, the fact that she has stabbed herself through so that the point comes out the other side of her arm. Like this idea of like, again, she's not stabbing herself in the chest, she's not stabbing herself in the heart, right? But this idea of like being impaled uh, on this knife is 
is something like a symbol of how she feels, right? How she feels transfixed, how she feels skewered um, by this. But I think even more importantly, um, uh, even more importantly, is the symbolism, I think, not only of the wound and of her arm, but of the blood. It's that last sentence. Tie up my wound, said I, sitting down and holding my arm out to let the blood fall on the heather. Remember where we are. This is the Valley of the Gods. This is where, you know, it's, well, this is beyond where, but this is near where Psyche was brought to be sacrificed. This is where, this is the area where the great sacrifice is made. Um, Psyche herself was dedicated to um, sacrifice. And now the dripping of blood, right? The, the stabbing of a victim and then the holding of the wound out to let the blood fall and drip is a very sacrificial moment. And oh my gosh, Mighty Felix, you are completely correct. They're probably inside Psyche's house. Yes. Yeah, Orwell can't see it. But they are, right? Which means this is happening in the house of the god. The thing that corresponds to, right, the invisible to Orawal house of the god that Psyche now lives in, which is the, um, you know, the, the beautiful, majestic, otherworldly house up on the hill, which corresponds to the ugly, dark, squat house of Ungit, right, down in the valley. Um, but yes, <clears throat> blood sacrifices in the house of Ungit, where victims are stabbed or slashed and their blood is drained out, is poured out, right, dripped and poured out over the statue of Ungit, the, the rock, remember, uh, the black rock. Um, yes, thank you, Ambrosius. Uh, Psyche says a little later, I can't have your blood on my threshold. Good. Yes. Definitely in the house. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so yes, the there's no escaping the symbolism of blood sacrifice that's here. And it really forces us to think about this. What Orwell does to herself here and what she's attempting to accomplish through that act of sacrifice, that act of bloodletting, even though it's of herself, right? And to think about that in conjunction with the great sacrifice of the accursed, right? The great sacrifice of Psyche herself. To think about the sacrifices that are done uh, down in the house of Ungit, right? Um, and, uh, yeah, that is, um, that is huge. Boy, that bears thinking about for a long time, right? Um, on the one hand... Although the House of Ungit is tangible and real, though dark, you can't see much, right? Um, you can't see much of the House of Ungit. In fact, remember, Orwell doesn't even really know what it looks like. It's so dark in there all the time. Um, so there's a sense in which she has never seen the House of Ungit either, any more than she's seen the House of the God up here, um, but in a different sense. Um, 
there's another sense in which, again, we have like the the sort of uh, crude fumbling sort of like in the worship of Ungit in the house of Ungit. Are they like, are they in touch with something real? Yeah, in some sense, I think. Like, I, I don't think we're supposed to understand. Um, remember Orwell's experience of like the real power of Ungit, of the priest of Ungit, remember? In that passage earlier before. Like, there's something on some level, there's some reality behind the worship of Ungit and the house of Ungit. And yet, it's not really the real thing. Right? It's only a shadow. It's a dark shadow, right, of the real thing. And the house of the god up here on the mountain is like the real thing, right? Um, and that, I think, is, seems to be one of the reasons why uh, Orwell can't see it, right? Um, so thinking then about the com when we... When this idea of the blood sacrifice, of the blood being poured out, um, the blood of the victim being poured out, is sort of um, juxtaposed there, when we it kind of bringing those two houses together, it makes, in a sense, I think, um, uh, it makes the um, the act of Orwell here even more horrible, like more sacrilegious under almost any circumstance her stabbing herself in her arm and letting her own blood drip would that's not a good sacrifice right i mean that and then what she's doing think of it again she's trying to use that act of self-wounding and of bleeding as a lever right almost as a club with which to compel psyche to do what she wants and isn't that much like what the king was doing with all of the bulls and rams that he sent to the house of Ungit to try to leverage Ungit into giving him a son um, such that when a daughter was born instead who turned out to be psyche um, he wanted his bulls and rams back and was yelling at the priest Right, um, uh, about how Ungit had let down her, you know, had not done her part of the bargain. So, what was he thinking there? Right, that he can force action, he can force Ungit to obey him when he says, Give me a son. Right, so there's, um, yes, very transactional rather than relational. Yes, yes, exactly. And yes, Liz, I think you're right. And there's a sense in which what she, what she, what uh, Orwell is doing is the opposite of sacrifice, taking instead of offering, right? But taking, like, by means of the sort of sacrificial act, right? Um, it's, um, yeah, yeah, I agree. Oh, that's really great. Feonaro says, uh, spilling the blood um, for a sacrifice is usually a form of submission, but here Orwell's blood is more like subversion. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. Um, lots of stuff. And oh, yeah, Jackrabbit, really great. Um, Orowal only becomes aware of the power of the priest when there's a blade stuck into him. Yeah, it's actually stuck in, uh, like, I don't know, like a centimeter or so, right, in his side. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, that's true. 
That's true. Um, yes. Okay. Um, so it's so much going on here. And I, I think if we, there's too much even to really think through, or rather if I tried to think it all through right now, I would, uh, I'd be on this slide for most of the night, most of the rest of the night. Um, but, um, thinking about not only what Orwell does here, like, again, the sort of pseudo-sacrifice, right, of her own blood uh, here, um, and thinking of that in juxtaposition with the, the blood sacrifices in the House of Ungat, but also with the sacrifice of Psyche herself, right? The difference between these two sisters, both of whom are sacrificed, right? The one... Uh, you know, in the great sacrifice and the other in this other way and through for these other reasons. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, really so much to think about. So much to think about. Well, let's keep following this. Maya, said Psyche, what did you do that for? To show you I'm in earnest, girl. Listen, you have driven me to desperate courses. I give you your choice. Swear on this edge, with my blood still wet on it, that you will this very night do as I have commanded you, or else I'll first kill you and then myself. Orawal, said she, very queen-like, raising her head, you might have spared that threat of killing me. All your power over me lies in the other. Then swear, girl, you never knew me break my word. The look in her face now was one I did not understand. I think a lover... I mean, a man who loved, might look so on a woman who had been false to him. At last, she said, You are indeed teaching me about kinds of love I did not know. It is like looking into a deep pit. I am not sure whether I like your kind better than hatred. Oh, Orowal, take my love for you, because you know it goes down to my very roots and cannot be diminished by any other newer love. And then, to make of it... Sorry, I missed it. To take my love for you... Because you know it goes down to my very roots and cannot be diminished by any other newer love. And then to make of it a tool, a weapon, a thing of policy and mastery, an instrument of torture. I begin to think I never knew you. Whatever comes after, something that was between us dies here. Whatever comes after, something that was between us dies here. Um, this moment is certainly a kind of death. Oh, Eric, I agree. That last line is so devastating. Um, so devastating. Um, yeah, yeah. Sarah, I agree. Sarah says, um, and yet will Orwell actually hear this? Her track record is not good in accepting hard truths. You are correct <laughs> about that. Um, her own, Orwell's own explanation of why she did it is to show her she's in earnest, right? To show you I'm serious, to show you I mean what I say. You have driven me to desperate courses. And yes, um, uh, oh, who was uh, pointing? Yes, Ar Argent Paintbrush, the blame shifting, 
There, you have driven me to desperate courses, right? If I am acting badly, it's your fault, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, Eric, I think you're exactly right. Um, Eric is noting how the symbolism of sacrifice in the action of stabbing herself, something has been killed, right? There has been a victim in this sacrifice. Um, the victim is an Orowal herself. The victim is, is, is not Psyche either. The victim is their relationship. Um, something that was between us has died. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Ambrosius, that's a really interesting point. Um, it's devastating, and yet I'm proud of Psyche. Though, again, it's difficult, because I almost wish Psyche wouldn't love Orowal so much as to be moved even by this. A little coldness might have saved them both, but perhaps not in the long run. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, um, Psyche's reactions continue to be important, right? Continue to be, uh, to be really impressive. Um, yeah, yeah, um... And Yero, you're absolutely right um, that she is, Orwell has killed the very thing she was trying to save, which was her relationship with Psyche. Um, I was thinking the same thing. My subtitle for this slide was the, is The Gulf Widens. Remember that cry of despair that Orwell had in their previous conversation when she said she feels like they're on two different like there's that a gulf is opening between them and they're not on, they're on different sides of it. Right. And the gulf in question was the gulf between the human and the divine that she felt like she was losing psyche, losing her because she's grown up, losing her because she's gotten married, losing her because she is crossing over into this divine world. She's becoming a goddess. Um, Psyche was talking a lot about that kind of thing, about her experience as a human interacting with the divine things, but she was being naturalized. And remember, she looked taller, she was radiant, she was shining, she was like a goddess, um, as uh, Bardia certainly believed. Um, but um, although Orowal was crying out in that moment for Psyche not to leave her, right? Not to be separated her from this gulf. Her reaction to that has been almost explicitly to push further away. Um, and it's so sad to see this, just as she was harming herself with the knife, um, to see the equally, in fact, far more self-destructive, self-sabotaging um, direction that her choices, that her passions are driving her to. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, Yes, uh, several of you are pointing out that, well, let's say that painful paragraph, like they're all painful in this section of the book. The look in her face now was one I did not understand. But Orwell has a theory. 
I think a lover, I mean a man who loved, might look so on a woman who had been false to him. Um, it is interesting that Orwal herself has a sense. The only thing she can compare Orwal's, or sorry, Psyche's facial expression to is one that she has never seen and will never see. Um, not directed towards herself. Uh, the, as far as the why specifically a man, Eric, I think um, because she is comparing Psyche's look to the look that a male lover would have when he looks on a woman who's been false to him puts Orwell in the female position. Um, I mean, it, you know, like gender-wise, that could go the other way, right? It would still be the same kind of comparison. <clears throat> but it puts Orwell in the position of the of the of the woman of the 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 woman who has been false, right? Um, <clears throat> and uh, I think the reason for that. I think we're supposed to be thinking about the things we just were mentioning, right? Um, uh, we're supposed to be thinking about Orwell's virginity. We're supposed to be thinking about how uh, Orwell does not understand this, right? This whole paragraph kind of goes back onto then you know little of love, you fling my virginity in my face, right? Um, she knows little. She doesn't really know. She's not sure what a man who's, you know, how a man would look at a woman who is false to him because she's never had a man look at her in love in the first place, right? It's, again, her virginity, her ignorance of love. But, of course, this is not that. She's just comparing it to that situation. Just as in this earlier exchange where Psyche says, then you know little of love, and, like, it's, yes, that means you're a virgin, but it also means um, you got other issues, <laughs> right? Um, and so I think the same is true here, right? Um, that we're kind of, she's, her comparison, her metaphor there, um, layers her ignorance of love, and that's why it's important that she's, she puts herself in that... Um, that place of the erotic beloved, which is, which she doesn't know, which she's never been in, just as she, she doesn't understand Psyche's look here because she's not been there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, I agree, Sarah. Um, I think it is also very likely. It also fits within this culture that we've seen. Um, it seems very likely that there is... Uh, we don't know for sure if this is the case, but it probably is the case that in Gloam, as in so many places, there is a, a massive and harsh double standard about adultery with men and women, right? Um, where the sexual fidelity of the woman is of paramount importance 
Um, but the man's sexual fidelity is irrelevant. And so if the gender positions were reversed, that same look wouldn't even be there. Um, that seems likely to be the case. Um, and so it's not true that the metaphor would work within the what we can tell of the culture of Gloam. And even the, the king's attitude towards the casual begetting of bastards in his court, um, not only on his own part, but on the part of other people, seems to suggest that kind of... Um, um, that kind of double that's that's the primary thing that I base that statement on that it seems likely that the culture of Gloam has that kind of double standard um, um, yes Argent Paintbrush Odysseus versus Penelope is certainly an excellent example of another similar kind of uh, double standard of that sort um, uh, one where virtue is being praised of course but um, Odysseus uh, uh, you know Shacking up with every nymph and sorceress on the road home um, is not criticized, um, despite how much Penelope is praised for her chastity. Um, but anyway, okay. Um, yes, Eric, you're completely right. Um, the betrayal of trust. And, I, and, and Eric, I think that's another reason why um, she brings it up and brings it up sort of in this way, right? She is looking into Psyche's face and seeing the profound betrayal of trust. The same, Eric, as you point out, the same exact betrayal of trust that Orwal is trying to force Psyche to do to her husband. Um, yes, she's, you know, Psyche isn't going to be sexually unfaithful to her husband. But the breach of trust is going to be as profound. And yes, the look in Psyche's face as she looks on Orwell here is, I think, a foreshadowing. And again, I think that's another reason why it comes back to the sexual relationship language here, is to, um, uh, for, uh, is to hint at that. And remember, this is exactly what, Orwell, what Psyche was talking about when she said, you know little of love. If you can't think of any other reason why I would trust my husband, like, to only think that merely distrust and fear is what leads me to obey him, in you know to 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 to, to do what he says and not um, in 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 doing what he's asked me to promise to do, right? Um, that is not to see his face. Um, yes. Uh, Oh, man, all the things, all the things just cascading together here. Um, notice the clarity with which Psyche identifies what Orwell has done. She accuses Orwell of taking Psyche's love because Orwell knows how profound Psyche's love is for her. Um, and again, notice, because you know it goes down to my roots, to my very roots, and cannot be diminished by any other newer love, which is exactly what Orwell was feeling, thinking, assuming. And she brings that back to her and says, because you know, if you didn't know 
that my love for my husband could not kill my love for you, you would never have tried this. This whole maneuver that you're making, threatening to kill yourself, wounding yourself, threatening to kill yourself if I don't do what you ask, um, that is premised upon the idea that you know my love for you remains. And yet Orwell's, you know, all accusing her of loving her no longer, right? All fearful of loving her no longer. And again, what was it that Orwell, you know, says or implies is the only one reason why um, Psyche would obey the forbidding? Fear. Fear to see the truth, right? But of course, it's Orwell who is being guided by fear. Fear that she's going to lose Psyche's love. And, but as Psyche points out, the fact that you know, that's what this whole maneuver is based upon. Eric, I think you mentioned before, um, uh, when she says to make of my love for you a thing of policy and mastery, um, I think you were absolutely right to connect that to the king, their father. Um, she is acting like her father. She is acting like the king. An instrument of torture. Something their father would do. Um, you know, perhaps even worse than their father would do. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and Kali Elros, yeah, it is ironic that Orwell says she couldn't feel the wound at all, um, but Psyche feels the wound. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Maureen, I find that too, and I find it very striking. Um, from a storytelling standpoint, C.S. Lewis has taken a pretty serious risk with Psyche, right? Um, when you write a character who is perfect in every way, right? Uh, it's hard. It's hard to write a character who's perfect in every way that your readers don't end up hating, right? But I find Psyche is never gets just cloying and tedious and awful. I, 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 Psyche in this book never makes me roll my eyes in ways that like, perfect, perfect characters you know very often do. Almost, it feels like inevitably end up doing, right? Um, so um, I, I, Maureen, I, I think that, that it's a really interesting accomplishment, and it would be interesting, it would be an interesting thing to study on its own as a kind of narrative experiment, right? How does, how exactly does he pull that off? Partly I think it's the first-person perspective of Orwell that helps, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but, um, yeah. Anyway, um, anyway, there's, um, there's a lot to think about there, but I think it's a great observation. Um, I feel like there was one. Oh yeah, one other thing I wanted to say though, um, before we leave this, and then we will. Um, 
I want to just kind of flag for a moment. I mean, it's easy to be pretty harsh with Orwell here. I want to um, be a little bit... Um, uh, I want to be a little bit fair to Orwell the old lady who's narrating this story. The sentence, the look in her face now, was one I did not understand. Just to admit that, instead of trying to describe it. And then making that very unflattering comparison. Um, comparing herself to the adulterous lover, right? The adulterous, the unfaithful lover. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, there's a there's an a, there's a retrospective honesty here, and this is. Just, I wanted to emphasize this again because remember we've talked about this. The the question of Orwell's reliability as a narrator. Um, I think this is a really good example of a place where you can see Orwell is not just going out of her way to try to make herself look good. Um, she is. There are decades of <clears throat> painful self reflection that seem to underlie that. And yet, there are so many places and so many ways in which Orwell has not yet really gotten it and still doesn't really get it, right? And yet, I think that we can see in that moment there, um, as we've been able to see in some other places, that there is a kind of a gap between the character that she is describing, right, who she was, who she was, what she thought, and what she understood at the time, and what she thinks and what she understands decades later when she's narrating the story. And she is often faithfully going out of her way um, to uh, uh, represent even the embarrassing things that she thought at the time, right? The embarrassing or shameful things that she thought, even though she admits that they're shameful later on, right? She has enough distance from it to acknowledge that. Um, and I think that this is one of those things, right? Um, at the time, she just didn't understand. And it seems the I think is, I, is, I believe, told from that later perspective. I think says, you know, what, 70-year-old Orwell, or however old she is when she's writing the book. I think a lover. Right, might look so on a woman who had been false to him. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Corey, it's also possible that there's repression happening here, that she seems to be realizing things as she writes. Yes. Um, yes. Yes. Um, and yes, Mrs. Manrique, I also, I, I feel like we jumped ahead to looking at the later statements because that last paragraph by Psyche is so powerful. I don't want to leave this slide just like... I feel we barely even talked about the fact that she's th threatened to to kill Psyche and then commit suicide, right? Like, that's, that's, a, that's a really big deal, right? 
the stabbing of herself was the major crossing of the line, right? She then crosses, you know, another huge, two huge lines after that, threatening to kill herself in order to manipulate Psyche, and then, and also, by the way, threatening to murder her as well, which um, Psyche just brushes off, right? Very queen-like. You might have spared that threat of killing me. All your power over me lies in the other. You are not going to intimidate me by threatening to murder me, right? All your power over me lies in threatening to harm yourself. Um, yeah, yeah. And Argent, yeah, you're right. Um, paralleling murder-suicides being most common in intimate partners. Yes, yes. Um, back to that um, lover uh, uh, and woman who had been false to him situation, right? Or anticipating it, really. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, let's keep going. If I do, she said hotly, it will not be for any doubt of my husband or his love. It will, be, it will only be because I think better of him than of you. He cannot be cruel like you. I'll not believe it. He will know how I was tortured into my disobedience. He will forgive me. He need never know, said I. The look of scorn she gave me flayed my soul. And yet this very nobleness in her, had I not taught it to her? What was there in, what was there in her that was not my work? And now she used it to look at me as if I were base beneath all baseness. You thought I would hide it? Thought I would not tell him? She said each word like the rubbing of a file across raw flesh. Well, it's all of a piece. Let us, as you say, make an end. You grow more and more a stranger to me at each word. And had I loved and I had loved you so, loved, honored, trusted, and, while it was fit, obeyed. And now but I can't have your blood on my threshold. You chose your threat well. I'll swear. Where's your dagger? Oh, man. Man. This chapter. These chapters, chapter 14 and 15, just so intense, so amazing. Um... Yeah, Sarah, the... The levels of irony in that statement, what was there in her that was not my work, right? The uttering of that statement shows how much more there is in Psyche than Orwell seems ever to have had to give, right, in this moment. As Psyche herself is sort of pointing to, right? You become, you grow more and more a stranger to me at each word, right? Um, as she was saying before, like, I feel like I've never known you. I get, like I'm now seeing you for the first time. Um, notice apocalypse happening, right? The unveiling, um, a horrible unveiling of Orwell here. Um, uh, yeah. The painfully ironic um, and also 
pitiful in more than one sense. Attempt at um, self, what self-justification, right? Self, um, like self-deception. But um, you know, she is aware. Orwell is aware, on some level, aware of how horribly she is acting. Um, she knows this, uh, and it's like she's not just deflecting; she's shielding um, herself from this. And yet, this very nobleness—had I not taught it to her? Notice when that comes up, the look of scorn she gave me flayed my soul. Her soul, her psyche, is being skinned alive by Psyche's look of scorn. Um, that Psyche, the girl whom he, she loved and taught, could have her looks of love and affection and devotion for her be replaced by this scorn, looking down on her for her words is devastating to her and the self-defense there, right? This very nobleness in her, and yet, this very nobleness in her, had I not taught it to her, what was there in her that was not my work? I can feel better about myself, right? Like she is looking down on me from a place very much higher than I, right? And yet I can comfort myself by that very fact. Instead of looking around at where I'm standing, right, and what I'm doing, I can look up at her at the vantage point from which she is staring down in scorn and disgust at me and compliment myself on getting her up there, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Sayonara, when she talks about thinking better of her husband than of Orwell, um, she says he will forgive me. Um, she is... She wants to emphasize that she's, she's going to do what Orwell is trying to force her to do. Um, she can't have her blood on her threshold. Um, but she's not doing it out of any doubt of her husband. He will know how I was tortured into my disobedience. He will forgive me. Notice that the very statement, he will forgive me, is a confession of guilt. Psyche acknowledges that what she's doing, she calls it disobedience. She acknowledges that what she's going to do is wrong that she is about to agree to undertake a wrong action. But she hopes and believes that he will forgive her for that wrong action. Um, Liz, you're exactly right. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote an excellent short essay on forgiveness. And one of the, the primary point he was making in that article was that, um, well, one of the main points he was making was that a lot of people 
confuse forgiveness with excusing, right? Um, an ex to excuse an action is to say that really no fault is attached to it, right? Um, uh, like if you step on somebody's foot and hurt them, like in the dark and you didn't see them, you're not to blame. Like there's nothing to forgive. Um, your action is excused by the fact that you had no ill intention and didn't even know you were doing it, right? So that's an excuse for the action and no forgiveness is really needed. Um, uh, I mean, we shouldn't be. It's easy to, when you're the person whose foot got stepped on, to feel like the other person does need forgiveness. But if you're being completely fair-minded, they didn't do anything wrong. Um, forgiveness comes in when there is fault. Um, as Lewis says, when all the excusing has been done, what's left is what needs forgiving. Um, and so I agree with you. We can see that. We can, as Liz said, Psyche's kind of in the middle here. On the one hand, she's pleading an excuse. I was tortured into my disobedience. That's an excuse, right? Um, uh, I didn't. I didn't do it for any doubt of my husband or his love. That's also like a proclamation, right, of of her kind of attempting uh, to excuse herself. Um, but yet, she doesn't think it can simply be excused. Like that, there's in the end going to be nothing that needs forgiving, nothing that she actually did wrong. There will be, which is why she talks about forgiveness. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Eric, it's a really good and very difficult question. What would be the most perfect choice Psyche could make here? Would it be to let her sister kill herself? Um... That's not obvious that that would be the best choice here. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't know what might have been here. Um, Ambrosius asks, would a more divine psyche... Um, have let Orwell die. Oh, thank you, Jackie. Um, uh, very interesting. Uh, Lewis quote. So in the last resort, we must turn down or disqualify our nearest and dearest when they come between us and our obedience to God. Yeah, that's a really tough quote. Heaven knows it will seem to them sufficiently like hatred. Um, we must not act on the pity we feel. We must be blind to tears and deaf to pleadings. Yeah, it's a... You're right to draw that parallel. That's involved here. Um, uh, <clears throat> yes. Uh, <laughs> JJ's quoting from Prince Caspian, Lucy talking to Aslan about how she could have left her brothers and sisters and followed when she knew she was supposed to. I'm laughing, JJ, because uh, I just recently started yesterday 
actually started a reread of the Chronicles of Narnia, and I literally just read that chapter today. Um, so, uh, yes, yes, I was thinking of that, too. Um, the way that Psyche turns Orowal's words against her. Um, let us, as you say, make an end. Orwell said that, right, when she was, um, an end of this must be made, I said. You shall do it. Psyche, I command you. She was referring to an end of this nonsense, an end of this disobedience of me, right? An end of this refusal to do what I am telling you to do. And so she puts it into a straight imperative, you shall, not even an imperative, right? What's stronger than an imperative? Future indicative. Second person future indicative. That's what's stronger than the imperative. You shall do it. Um, and the way that, that that Psyche brings that back, let us, as you say, make an end. Let us make an end to this conversation, an end to this scene, an end to this torture, an end to our relationship, an end to our love. Um, yeah, yeah. Maureen, yeah, this book functions like a myth for me so much more than anything else I've read. I'm telling you. Um, yes, the mythic dimensions of this book in retelling the myth when modern writers do this sort of thing you know do like a take or a version of a myth you know kind of taking a myth and turning it into a a, a, a new story um, and that's not something that's a new thing of course right like Beauty and the Beast was itself a myth retold this same myth retold right um, just retold hundreds of years ago. Um, one of the things that often happens, not in the case of Beauty and the Beast, of course, but in, in, in the case of some modern retellings of mythic stories, um, <laughs> the unfortunate example of Disney's Hercules comes to mind. Um, the effect of retelling a mythic story is to make it less mythic, to rob it of much of what made it a mythic story in the first place. Um, and um, uh, what Lewis has done, the way that he has both availed himself of the original mythic power of this story and in retelling it, if anything, amplified it, I think is just absolutely remarkable. Um, and, um, I, um, yeah, I mean, this is why, these are among the reasons why I was, I kept throwing out there at the beginning before we even started discussing this book, when I was announcing that we were going to be doing this book yet, you know, or, or we were going to be doing this book soon. And I kept saying, 
we're going to be discussing Till We Have Faces, the greatest work of fiction that C.S. Lewis ever wrote. I, I mean, I believe this is his greatest book. Um, most powerful. It's just amazing. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Ambrosius, I think you're completely right. He says, what's amazing is that on paper... Um, it sounds like Lewis's approach would make it less mythic because he gave it so much more psychological realism and a modern level of emotional detail. And that usually does distance us. I agree with you. Um, usually does distance us from that kind of the pure mythic power of this, of usually the, the much simpler story, right? Um, in the older mythic form. But yet, despite that, right, it does still work as myth upon us. Totally agree. Totally agree. Um, Okay. So I had won my victory, and my heart was in torment. I had a terrible longing to unsay all my words and beg her forgiveness, but I held out the dagger. The oath on edge, as we call it, is our strongest in gloom. And even now, said Psyche, I know what I do. I know that I am betraying the best of lovers, and that perhaps before sunrise all my happiness may be destroyed forever. This is the price you have put upon your life. Well... I must pay it. She took her oath. My tears burst out, and I tried to speak, but she turned her face away. The sun is almost down, she said. Go. You have saved your life. Go and live it as you can. Oh, man. <laughs> like, every one is more painful than the one before. Oh, my goodness. Um, uh, the incredibly horrifying realization, right? Which Orwell is like not even a halfway letting herself have. Um, what has she, what did she do? What did she choose? Right? In convincing herself she was doing what was best for Psyche, right? That she knew best and Psyche did not and, you know, all those other pretenses in the end, the way that Psyche lays it out, you have saved your life. This is the price you have put upon your life. By threatening to kill herself, that's what Orwell has done. She has made it about herself. We saw that pattern all the way through, right? That it was always about her and her love for Psyche and never about Psyche really or Psyche's happiness, even though she would talk about that, right? Um, uh... This is the price you have put upon your life. Well, I must pay it. You have saved your life. To show... I mean, it's hard to imagine anything more painful um, that Psyche could have said to Orwell in this moment than to say, all of this was about you. In the end, you've tried to save yourself. You, Congratulations. You've succeeded. Go and live it as you can. Knowing that she has lost Psyche. That she has killed. That she has sacrificed. Made a bloody sacrifice of the loving relationship that she had with Psyche. 
um, oh, that's a fascinating idea, Eric. It feels like the last line of a perverted mass. There were the words of the god, there was sacrifice, here is the dismissal. Go in peace. Right? Um, oh, man. That's a horrible parallel. But, yeah. Yeah. Um, because, of course, I don't want to emphasize it too much. I don't want to bring this out too much because the text doesn't do it, but it's there. Right. I mean, we've been talking about sacrifice and the power of blood. We've been talking about the house of Ungat and the house of the God on the hill. Um, if in thinking about that sacrifice language, that sacramental language, we also then apply it to the sacraments, right? The Christian sacraments to the Eucharist, um, to the church and the church ceremony like that, the house of God, right? Um, like the house of Ungit, like the house of the God on the hill. Um, and also to the sacrifice of Jesus and the crucifixion. Um, yes, these are all very relevant things to be thinking about and definitely part of the overall structure that he's bringing together. But I would point out um, there is almost no direction. There's almost no pointing that way, explicit pointing that way. And that's um, uh, uh, that's um, <laughs> unusual for Lewis. Um, uh, in some ways, I, I actually think he gets a slightly bad rap there. Um, but still, that kind of subtlety was never his goal in a lot of his other books. Um, uh, his to use his word carefully, discretion. That is his willingness to be indirect, right? Um, in this book is very unusual. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yara said, I always feel weird saying, yeah, I like this book. When, uh, when I mean this book ripped my heart out of my chest, you should read it too. Yeah. So then Jackie expressing, uh, gladness that we have this support group to lean on while reading this book. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yet, JJ, I agree. I think it sh JJ, so I think it shows that it's not unusual because he was bad at it, but just because he didn't choose to use it elsewhere. Yeah, no, I mean it's, um, uh, I, um, well, I won't get into a hold. I've, I've been rereading Narnia actually these last couple of days, so I'm I've been thinking about that a lot. But I'm not going to digress into talking about Narnia because we have, um. um too much more to talk about. Let's keep going. My purpose was to sit by the ford, watching till I should see a light, which would be Psyche lighting her lamp. It would vanish when she covered and hid it. Then, most likely far later, there would be a light again. She would be looking at her vile master in its sleep. And after that, 
very, very soon after it, I hoped, there would be Psyche creeping through the darkness and sending a sort of whispered call, Maya, Maya, across the stream, and I would be halfway over it in an instant. This time it would be I who helped her at the ford. She would be all weeping and dismayed as I folded her in my arms and comforted her, for now she would know who were her true friends and would love me again and would thank me, shuddering, for saving her from the thing the lamp had shown. These were dear thoughts to me when they came and while they lasted. But there were other thoughts, too. Try as I would, I could not quite put out of my head the fear that I had been wrong. A real god. Was it impossible? But I could never dwell on that part of it. What came back and back to my mind was the thought of Psyche herself somehow, I never knew well how. Ruined. Lost. Robbed of all joy. A wailing, wandering shape for whom I had wrecked everything. More times than I could count that night, I had the wish, tyrannously strong, to recross the cold water, to shout out that I forgave her her promise, that she was not to light the lamp, that I had advised her wrongly, but I governed it. Yes, uh, Jackrabbit says this kind of fantasizing is typical of the narcissist. Yeah, that the first fantasy there, yes. And of course, notice how explicitly um, opposite, how explicitly this reverses her own sense of her inadequacy, the strength of Psyche as she came halfway across the stream to help uh, Orwell across, um, all of those times from the room with five sides on, Right when she came hoping that Psyche would be depending on her for strength and that she could comfort Psyche, but in fact, Psyche proved herself to be the stronger and Orwell herself to need the comforting from the very you know, beginning after the announcement of the sacrifice um, and all the way through. Um, this fantasy that she should be proven, after all, to be the strong one. Um, that Psyche would need her again. Um, and yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, I agree, Eric, but I governed it. It's so ominous, isn't it? Um, tyrannously strong. Right? Like a tyrant governs, you say? Um, it's the tyrannously strong wish that she's governing. She's governing over the tyrannous wish. Right? She is not herself being a tyrant. But, um... Yeah. Yes. And Mary, yes. Psyche, the bed, the lamp. You are correct to uh, remember that little passage I pointed out saying is going to be important later, right? That image when she came into the room with five sides, right? Psyche, the bed, the lamp was like that image was burned into her head, right? Because it was anticipating this moment. Um, yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's why we pointed that out earlier. Um, we made sure to notice it so that we could, we could bring that back here, right? When she, and remember uh, the conversation in the room with five sides. How does that happen? A bit, only by a betrayal of trust. Bardia was told to not let anybody in, right? But he 
transgresses, he betrays his trust, and he lets her into the secret inner chamber that nobody is supposed to see. And in that chamber is Psyche, a bed, and a lamp. Right. So the kind of like reversal or anticipation of the whole sneaking into the husband's bedchamber with the lamp and um, seeing his face, it's all kind of seated there. And also, again, the parallels between Orwell and Psyche and Psyche and Cupid there. Um, just such a gorgeously constructed book. I can't even handle it. Okay. Um, uh yeah, yeah. Um, looking at her, um, again, don't forget about the frame. Don't forget that this is geriatric Orwell talking, remembering these things. And so we can see how those things are contextualized. The fantasy... Dear thoughts to her while they came and while they lasted, right? Um, but there were other thoughts, too. Notice how quickly she, she backs away from the thought, a real God. Was it impossible? We, she was the only one who was entertaining that, right? <clears throat> Bardia assumed it was the beast, right? Um, he believes the gods are real, but he'd quite like to have no part of them, and he just hopes they don't notice him. Um, that's why he always is real careful about that, right? Um, the fox cannot even consider that the divine nature could be like that, right? Um, so she was the only one who was ever willing to consider that it was possibly a real god, but we've seen that idea come to her several times. And she pushes it away really, really fast. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, so Mary, what she's seeing is Psyche lighting... So Psyche hi- light, lights a lamp and hides it, like under a bushel. <laughs> she hides it under a... under a, under a You know, like in a pot. Um, so that he can't see it. So that... Because th- then when he's there in the bedroom... She doesn't have to, like, light it because, you know, it's not as simple as hitting the flashlight button on your phone. Um, I, you know, she'd have to, like, she'd wake him up by trying to strike the light, right? So you light it first, and then you just open it to shine the light on him. Um, So, yeah, it would be in an urn. It would be in the urn, right, the lamp. And and she would, like, lift it up to reveal it. Um, Yeah. That's why she sees the light, and then the light goes away, and then she's waiting for the light to come the second time. That's how it's supposed to how it's supposed to work. Um, okay, let's keep going. How could she hate me when my arm throbbed and burned with the wound I had given it for her love? Cruel psyche, cruel psyche! I sobbed, but then I saw that I was falling back to the dreams of my sickness. So I set my wits against it and bestirred myself. Whatever happened, I must watch and be sane. The first light came soon enough and vanished again. I said to myself, though indeed once I had her oath, I never doubted her faith to it. So, all's well this far. It made me wonder, as at a new question, what I meant by well. But the thought passed. 
Um, <laughs> Maureen says, be sane, fail. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you remember what she's referring to? Cruel psyche, cruel psyche. When she was ill, um, when psyche, the day, you know, after she got beaten up by her dad um, and then psyche gets taken away. Remember, she's delirious and, and, and um, in fever dreams for days after that. One of the trends you may remember of her fever dreams was that she dreamed that Psyche had betrayed her. Uh, cruel Psyche, cruel Psyche, she kept saying. Um, uh, like she was blame-shifting Psyche's own sacrifice onto Psyche herself. Psyche's departure, Psyche being taken away from her, was in um, Orwell's own subconscious mind, sort of turned into a betrayal of her by Psyche, which, of course, anticipated what she felt to be a betrayal when she meets her up here. Um, and, um, uh, now in this moment that the, that exact, the sobbing, the repetition of the phrase, just like in her, um, in her fever dreams returns to her and really emphasizes as you, as you say, um, the, um, the uh, the fact that the whole be sane thing is we're we're a little bit past that. Um, she's not watching and being sane, right? Um, she has distanced herself so much from reality. She has so thoroughly deceived herself. Um, think how empty that first question sounds. Not just empty. Horrible. How could she hate me when my arm throbbed and burned with the wound I had given it for her love? Like, Orwell, seriously, do you believe that? And then immediately, the reversion into the dreams of literal insanity. Like, of, like the, that were distant from reality. Right? When she was in delirium. And unaware of the world around her, she was having those dreams, right? Um, so we see her sort of returned to that state, right? To the dreams of her sickness. But she's doing it while healthy and awake, right? Um, and we can hear it. We can feel it from the start there. Um, anyway, keep going. The first light came soon enough, and okay, I said that. The cold grew bitter. My arm was a bar of fire, the rest of me an icicle, chained to that bar but never melted. I began to see that I was doing a perilous thing. I might die, thus wounded in fasting, or at least get such a chill as would bring my death soon after. And out of that seed there grew up in one moment a huge foolish flower of fancies. For at once, leaping over all question of how it should come about, I saw myself laid on the pyre, and Psyche, she knew, she knew now, she loved me again now, beating her breast and weeping and repenting all her cruelties. The fox and Bardia were there too. Bardia wept fast. Everyone loved me once I was dead. But I am ashamed to write all these follies. Um... Oh man, Jackrabbit, yes. My arm was a bar of fire, the rest of me an icicle, chained to that bar but never melted. 
<laughs> it is it is really good writing, isn't it? Um uh so much there. Um Yep. Yep. The um they will love me when I'm dead fantasies. This really is like the the nadir of her um uh self delusions, right? Even she, that is geriatric Orowal, is ashamed to write all of these things. She does, right? She does admit them. She does admit that she had these fantasies. Um, she doesn't conceal those things. But, um, uh, but yes, um, everyone loved me once I was dead. Um, repenting all her cruelties. Oh, man. Oh, the blame shifting. Right. Um, I, um, I want to confess something. Many of you have been talking about the ways in which Orwell's behavior throughout these sequences has demonstrated classic illustrations of narcissism and narcissistic personality disorder. Um, I don't disagree with that in any way. You're completely right about those things. My confession is that um, uh, I find myself resistant I find myself resistant. I'm trying to identify my resistance to that. It's not because I disagree at all. Like, you're completely correct that she is demonstrating all these classic examples. I'm not trying to minimize that in any way. Um, I have no desire to minimize that. I think what I... um, I think the reason I feel resistant to that is that there's... that is true, but it's not the whole truth. There's more there also. Um, Orwell, yes, is following all of these patterns of abusive narcissistic personality disorder, but um, but that to merely say Orwell is a narcissist seems to me vastly inadequate. Um, to capture what's um, what's happening here. Um, and I, so I think the thing that I'm resistant to, I, I don't want anybody to think that I'm resistant to the that those observations. Again, I think that they're very true and very important. Um, what I... Um, yeah, that's an interesting way to think about it. Eric suggests narcissism is a result, not a cause. Um... Yeah, yeah, uh, something like that. Um, the thing I'm resistant to is the kind of the temptation to just kind of toss Orwell in in a in that bucket, right? Um, yep, that's Orwell all over, right? Narcissists from you know dawn to dusk, like that's 
it's not um it's not enough yeah it's it's not enough to characterize it um uh Jackrabbit, I think it's a good way to say it. Jackrabbit says, the fact that geriatric Orwal can tell this kind of truth about herself means that she's not a narcissist. She's looking back on her narcissism. Yeah, yeah, exactly, Mighty Felix. It's that impulse to move on, you know, to diagnose her and then move on, right? That's the thing that I am most resistant to. Um, her narcissism is not her whole story. It's a big part of her story, um, and it's important to see it. Because she doesn't, um, yet. At least the part of her that's in the middle of the story doesn't see it yet. The geriatric version, I think, does. Um, uh, uh, much, much more. Um, but anyway, yeah. So I just wanted to kind of speak that and get that. I'd been, uh, I'd been feeling it without talking about it, and I wanted to just kind of pull that out into the open for a minute. Um, uh, would a contemporaneous reader when the book was new have had these thoughts? I mean, uh, like, narcissistic and, you know, abusive narcissistic behavior patterns are not like a new invention, right? Um, I... Nor is the pattern of diagnosing somebody, throwing them in a bucket and moving on. That's also not a new thing. Um, but I do think um, the way in which that sort of gets applied with uh, uh, psychological things or personality disorders is a little bit different now than it was before. Yeah, we certainly do talk about mental health differently than 100 years ago. Yeah, exactly. Um um yeah yeah um and jack rabbit you're right a narcissist sees no other face um but his or her own yeah yeah exactly it's uh there is definitely a uh, a seeing faces issue there um okay uh didn't get there, but that's okay. I'm not going to keep going just because I'm super stubborn. Um, especially since I don't want to rush what's coming next. Um, because what's coming next is what happens when Psyche shines the light and breaks the taboo and disobeys her husband. Um... We've gotten, we've had one apocalypse. We've had a part of an apocalypse, right? The other apocalypse is coming soon. Um, uh, yeah, so I agree, Sarah. We're not gonna, we're not gonna rush it. Um, uh, so we'll have second apocalypse. Well, the big second apocalypse comes at the end of the book. The second half of the first apocalypse is yet to come. Um, We'll do that next time. Um, next week, so far as I know, unless something comes up, as it seems to have been doing a lot lately, um, uh, we'll do that next week. Uh, thanks so much. Uh, uh, this has been 
just a wonderful discussion. Um, I know a lot of you have been talking about how hard this book hits you and, and uh, how powerful it's been. I, I mean, I just wanted to share with you, I have... Um, uh, these last few months have not been the easiest months I've experienced in my life. Uh, not the worst either, but they've not been awesome in, in many ways. Um, and these discussions with you guys have been so wonderful for me. Um, I can't tell you how many times in our 10 so far um, uh, uh, sessions together, I have found uh, the examination and discussion and just, you know, marveling at this book and the things that are going on here um, to be therapeutic for me uh, and to be such a uh, such a light uh, to my day and a highlight of my week. So thank you for <laughs> for doing this with me because it's been awesome. Um, uh, anyway, thanks very much. We'll get to the second half of the first apocalypse next time. Um, don't forget uh, on Saturday, we're launching our new thing that I'm so excited to share with you guys. Um, four o'clock again at one o'clock, we're going to start talking about lots of Signum stuff. And we'll be talking about things, exciting things that are going to be coming up in the year ahead and all of our different programs. So, and you can find out more about all that we're doing at Signum. Four o'clock is the launch and announcement of the big new thing. So I hope that you can join me, uh, for that at least, if not, uh, for the rest of it. So, Thank you guys so much, and I will see you guys soon. Bye now.